0: No longer is it the way when many of us grew up. I can't speak for all of you, but I'm a little older than you are. But when I grew up, I knew I was going to die a Jew. It wasn't even a question. Who would kill me as a Jew? I wasn't sure about that. because <laughs> we had such a variety of opportunities, you know. So, and the question was for my generation: the question was uh, how to be Jewish. That was the question. Would I be? Uh, the the Jew, Judaism that I was raised in, orthodoxy, would it be something else? But how to be? It would be how would I cope in this world as a Jew? I had no question about being a Jew. And the questions I'm getting today are quite different. The questions I'm getting today are, are, are why be Jewish? Not how to be Jewish. That's not the question. Nobody comes to me and says, Rabbi, I want to be a reformed Jew. I want to be a conservative Jew. They're asking me, why be Jewish? Aren't we all the same? Isn't being Jewish being, you know, you get all these comments from people, isn't being Jewish being clannish? All those old things are coming back again. Aren't you people of the universe? Aren't you people of the universality? And of course, the uh, the answer is uh, is basically, as I mentioned uh, to you before, is that you know nobody really wants to be generic. Everybody wants to have a brand name. So when we were approached, I give you the story. It's a good micela. It's a little good story for Shabbos afternoon. And then we'll talk about this whole encounter with Judaism. I get a call from a friend. So I have one or two left, and um, I'm glad they call. This is a friend from college, and. Uh, We took different paths. I went more intensely into Judaism. He went into Buddhism, as many Jews do, and lived in San Francisco and got very involved in all kinds of stuff. And he gives me a call one day and he says, Moshe, I got a message from someone in the Dalai Lama's community uh, that he wants to meet Jews. So I say, okay, that's cool. So I said, how how did that come about? And sometimes a good deed actually leads to a good deed. I know it's hard to believe that, but it sometimes happens. It seems he, was a, he had heard from a person involved in a project that American Jewish World Service was just beginning. You're all familiar with American Jewish World Service? Really fantastic or, or organization. It was just beginning, and they were uh, providing aid for Tibetan refugees that were coming into India. And uh, one of the people working for HWS was approached by a, a Tibetan and said, Jews, you're Jewish. Oh, you don't look Jewish. No, that kind of <laughs> He says, you're Jewish? I go, yeah, he's Jewish. He says, you know, the Dalai Lama often talks about the Jews. He says, really? He says, yes, yes, he talks about the Jews and how they have, uh, they're they still around. And he finds them to be an inspiration. I say, good. Bye, bye. So one word goes to another word. The Dalai Lama wants to put up a meeting, wants to have a meeting between Jews and Tibetans. And he has Jews who are in the Tibetan community, but they're not Jewish Jews. You know what I mean, They're Jews by birth or by accident or whatever, but they're not necessarily committed Jews. So uh, this friend of mine who was not in the Jewish community at that time, still is not really, calls me up and says, okay, he wants m- me to invite Jews, who should I invite to the conversation? So yeah, you ask, well, what are you looking for? Well, looking for people who are not prima donnas. I say, well, then the list gets a little smaller, I say. <laughs> oh. You know, so there's the usual suspects. We have a whole like, group of usual suspects who, who meet with the Pope every couple of weeks, you know, the, the, that group. Um, so we, I helped put together a group, and it was a group that included uh, Arthur Green, my t- teacher, Arthur Green, my teacher, Yitz Greenberg, and his wife, Blue. All these are names that all of you know because you've probably been here. Um, uh, uh, Larry Kushner at that time, an uh, old, old friend of mine, it, it was, uh, and uh, Judy Hauptman, who was at the seminary teaching Talmud and uh, one other person was there, I forget right now, but the bottom line was we decided that we would arrange a meeting in, to coincide with the Dalai Lamas visiting the states in uh, the fall of 1989. And by we didn't know it at the time, but he would be awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize, right, at that time. We didn't know that at the time. So uh, the meeting was to be arranged in uh, the New York area, and Judy Hauptman's brother, Phil, who's a uh, gerontologist was a uh, It was a, a jubu He was raised in a uh, fairly traditional Borough Park kind of Jewish community, but also was a supporter of uh, of a Buddhist temple in Washington, New Jersey. You can't make this stuff up, you know. what I mean, <laughs> right? And, and and the Jewish temple and the Buddhist temple was, you know, I'd say 50 percent Yidla who are running the place. You know, I mean? <laughs> you know? Reb Zalman used used to joke in the old days when he went to conferences around the world uh, in Buddhism. Right? So the leader of every Buddhist delegation from every different country—they all were Jewish, you know. Basically, <laughs> so after I go off the stage, it you know, all speak Yiddish, basically this kind of stuff, right? But uh, so uh, the meeting takes place, and my job was sort of to be the show and tell guy. It was an I- interesting job. It was three or four days before Hashanah, so I was—I I showed the shofar, blew the shofar, we a safe for Torah. We, the idea was, it was it was like the first the first play date. <laughs> You know how it is, you have to have a first play date, it's very important. And uh, the conversation goes on beautifully, and uh, basically he uh, asks us the essential question that you, we're surprised we're not asked more often, which is, how did you guys make it? How do you survive? You're not supposed to be here. Doesn't make any sense for you to be here. History was against you, numbers were against you, power you didn't have for a very, very long, long time. So tell me, is there a secret to your survival? And then you, those of you who read the, read the book, The Jew and the Lotus, know that was a real impetus for us uh, to begin the idea of having an ongoing kind of dialogue. So after that first meeting, which was very successful, and everybody, we decided to, if you have to concretize the play date, what do you do? You've got to play at the other kid's house. Mm-hmm. can't have it twice at your house. Don't I? One is at your house, one is at the other kid's house. Then it's for real. Then you have a real play date. So we were able to get uh, uh, the Cummings Foundation to sponsor a trip of uh, four rabbis and four scholars and a reporter who wrote the book, uh, Roger Kamenetz, and a few other people to to document the event to go to play at the Dalai Lama's house. He is in exile with his community in a place called Dharamsala, which is north, about 500 kilometers north of New Delhi, and uh, that's where the government of exile exists, and uh, and we... uh, Started an encounter. We went up there and we spent a couple of weeks with his community. And with we met with him a number of times. We could talk about the, de- de- the details. But what I'm more interested is talking about what is the art of dialogue about, and I think that's really important to understand. Dialogue is not disputation, obviously, right? People, when you go into dialogue, what you do—the great secret of dialogue, the, the beauty of di- dialogue—if you're doing it well, It's true between Jews and Christians. There's a lot of Jewish-Christian work. I'm now doing Jewish-Muslim Jewish work, very hard, but we're doing it because we've got no choice, you know, uh, we're we're, we're, going to be living side by side forever, so we might as well learn to talk to each other, (laughs) is when you do dialogue, the basic function of the dialogue is to bring out the best stuff you got, the best stuff you got. And you put it out on the table, your jewels, and they put out their jewels, and you get a little envious of their jewels, they get a little envious of your jewels, and you come back loving your own tradition more, you know you have a good dialogue. So that's what the function of dialogue is. Not to convince anybody of anything, but saying, this is my beauty, this is my love, this is what keeps me alive as a human being. This is what I've gotten from my parents, this is what I hope to give to my kids. And you bring out the good stuff. You don't bring out you know, the hilarious that you knew in the family, you don't bring out, you don't bring out you know, the crazy Aunt Bertha, you keep them locked away. <laughs> you bring out, what did we bring out? We brought out Shabbos. And when, you know, Shabbos, what, did Shabbos, he described Shabbos to him, he said, wow, Shabbos? He said, Shabbos? He said, what, 25 hours a week that you can spend in somewhat contemplative life? He said, that's amazing, 25 hours a week, that's amazing. So after the meeting, we c- kidded to each other, well, we convinced him, now how do we convince the Jews? <laughs> you, know, you know, that's really the challenge. Right? So... Uh, <laughs> So what was, the, uh, what was the, uh, the intentionality behind it? Maybe there was some ulterior motive on the side of the Dalai Lama. Maybe he did buy into a little bit the idea that somehow we did have more power than we have, which is a, not an uncommon thing for people of uh, other traditions to believe, that somehow we do control the world, or at least have a lot of access to controlling it. That may be it. But I think more importantly it was that he understood very much that we were a tradition that could give him something that he needed badly, which was how to, to deal with the idea of diaspora. His community has been uh, dispersed now since 1969, let's say. The Chinese came in in 1949, but it took until 1969 for him to, to leave his country. And like all exiles, if you're familiar with our own exile, when we went into exile uh, during the uh, time of the First and Second Temple, what the conqueror does is gets rid of your elite class, your intellectual class, the heads of your academies, and he sends them out. And he leaves the other people below. And smart ones, smart empire builders, which we are not, by the way, as the United States policy, is you never get rid of the, 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 the stuff in the bottom. You have the people at the bottom still pay the bribes to the same guys they're paying. That's why we made the big mistake in Iraq. You know, we came in and we washed it all away. <laughs> you know, what I mean? and you can't do that. You really got to just get the big, 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 big guys, and you know, let everything just happen the way it happens. Because people don't like to change. It causes wars and killing and all kinds of stuff. So he asked us this question, and then the a question that we have to ponder ourselves. What is it that kept us alive in, for all these years? Now, we got hit with diaspora twice. I hope we don't get hit again, but twice at least. And the first one was a very short diaspora. You may be familiar with it. It was uh, after the destruction of the first temple in 586 BCE. I think it was a Wednesday. And... Uh, we were in exile, and our leadership, our heads of our academies, our, were sent to Babylonia, which is now, of course, Iraq today. And uh, within 50 years, Iran, Persia, beat Iraq. It's been going on for a long time, this stuff, a long time. And the Iranians beat the Iraqis, and the king of the Iranians, the Persians, King Cyrus, you're all familiar with this fellow, uh, invites the uh, Jews back, and he says, all right, you want to build your temple, Koshish why not do it? So he sends back the folks, and then the Second Temple period starts. And what happens is that we leave a diaspora community. It's fascinating. And the oldest diaspora community is the community in Babylonia, and they stayed part of the diaspora until from 586 BCE till 1952 CE. Pretty long time, right? The Bavlim, the Jews from Babylonia, right? And they finally, when the, when the State of Israel was established, as you know, in 1952, many Jews were forced to leave because they were accused of being Zionists, whatever it was. So there was always a diaspora community created. And the question is that what was the power of that diaspora community we can spend time talking about. The second diaspora, of course, happens with the destruction of the the second temple in the year 70, and there, too, the Romans slice away the the top layer of our people and disperse them to various places in the Middle East and uh, into Rome and uh, other places. And that one took a longer time for us to overcome. So, we were hit by diaspora. We were hit by galut, it's called. T- galut was, is no longer polite, because galut means exile. Very few Jews in Southern California feel that they're in exile. Maybe some of them do, but not many, right? Because if you don't want to be in exile, there's a plane that takes you right to Tel Aviv. So, 14 hours, you don't have to be in exile anymore. So, if, if you really don't want to be in exile. So, we, we don't say the exile anymore. So, you know, we say diaspora, it's sort of a nice and polite word. So, we were hit by diaspora. But we were also fortunate in the fact that we were able to have 1,700 years before modernity hit for us to create a religious structure, which you all know as Rabbinic Judaism, that proved that Judaism could be portable wherever it was in the world. Remarkable thing. We don't have time to talk about that, just a remarkable phenomena. To create a, a religious community, not based upon geography, common geography, or common language. It's remarkable. The annals of history. It's remarkable. So we had 1700 years in order to build it up and create that kind of structure. When modernity hit, the French Revolution, you all remember your days in school, 1789, the doors opened to citizenship in Europe. Even with that 1700 years, 90% of the Jewish people leave Judaism, traditional Judaism. Those doors opened, baby, they couldn't move fast enough to get out of the ghetto. And you know what? Rightly so. No brownie points to be in the ghetto. And of course, then, of course, all these modern denominations began to emerge, trying to figure out a way, how do we live in balance between being Jewish and being part of a secular general culture. And that's been going on and still will go on for many years after that. But the Dalai Lama and his community got hit with a double whammy. Not only diaspora, but modernity. Let's talk to you a little bit about what Tibet was like before the invasion of the Chinese. I hate to, If you're very romantic about it, you shouldn't be. It had its issues. It was a theocracy. It has a god-king. It has an elite that, in some ways, does did, ex, did exploit. Uh, the uh, lower classes. There's a very distinct monk culture, mon- monastic culture, and there's a householder culture. The householder culture supports the monastic culture, but is not given a lot of education. They're kept in sort of a limbo that they have and need the monastic culture to give them what they need educationally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it was for the most part a culture that was as hard to believe, but it's true because the Dalai Lama is such a joyous and wonderful person, but the predecessor to him, uh, his uh, previous reincarnation, was a xenophobe. The reason Tibet was able to preserve its heritage for so long is they didn't like anybody coming in and bothering them. You didn't, you know, they were not an open people. On the contrary, they were defensive people, rightly so, because of the history of those around them wanting to invade them, etc. They became very defensive. The Chinese used this, if you will, disparity of, uh, of Tibetan society as an excuse, quote-unquote, to liberate the proletarian Tibetans from the exploitation of the monks. That was the official excuse. So they weren't invading. It's like, it's like those Soviets in Czechoslovakia. Remember 668? Some of you may remember. They, we were invited in. <laughs> right? Uh, et cetera. So they go in in 49 and they do what they can do. But ul- ultimately, Tibetan nationalism begins to build. And then they realize that Dalai Lama is a dangerous person. So he's successfully uh, smuggled over into India. And he brings with him uh, his code array of, of key teachers and uh, exec- executives, etc., and sets up the government in, in exile. By 1970, he's beginning to realize that uh, this double whammy is going to be much too hard to bear. One, loss of land and autonomy. And second, uh, people being exposed for the first time to modernity. So there is a certain kind of attractiveness that modernity has that all of us, in a sense, understand, uh, that takes you away from your traditions. There's a price to pay. You're willing to pay the price, and most of us in our culture have paid that price. We'd rather be a piece of the action that's going on in the world than sitting back. We have those of our brothers and sisters who don't agree, but they're not necessarily uh, compatriots, if you be, be honest about it, and where, where the Jewish world is going. So we tried to uh, give an opportunity for uh, the Dalai Lama to ask questions and to receive some answers. We <coughs> prepared quite a bit for this, uh, for the, this event. And uh, for the second trip, uh, Arthur Green could not come, Larry Kushak could not come. We had another crew. We had uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful uh, te- teacher of mine who you all know, Reb Zalman Shachar Shalomi. Shalomi. Uh, we had Paul mendes floor everybody know Paul Mendez floor He's a professor at, uh, you know him from Hebrew University, so do I. Uh, professor of, uh, an expert on Buber and Rosenzweig. We had uh, Jonathan Omerman, some of you know Jonathan, he used to be in Los Angeles, right? Uh, he's, now he's up in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, we had uh, Blue and Yitz Greenberg, myself, uh, Nathan Katz, who's a p- professor of uh, the history of the Jews of India from Florida. And then we had Joy Levitt, who is now, Joy is now the uh, director of the uh, uh, JCC of Manhattan, for those of you who know it, near Lincoln Square. It's a very nice JCC. Whatever, it was a a rather uh, mixed group, and each of us had an assignment, and we worked on what the assignment would be beforehand, because we were given only two days, which is a remarkable thing to be given, by the way, two days to sit in a room one-quarter this size with the Dalai Lama and his uh, cohort. And the cohort are who are his cohort. There are these guys sitting behind them with the robes, with these faces. They all look like Ernest Borgnine on a bad day, and really, crag, <laughs> really craggy-looking guys. And they were the heads of the yeshivas, right? They had the yeshiva heads come, the Russian yeshiva. I'm saying yeshiva because uh, what immediately struck us was in this encounter was how similar many of the Tibetan institutions were to our own institutions. It was just... It was kind of mind-boggling in a way. By the way, the word yeshiva means a place to sit. Right, L'shevet? So when we say, as we just said, Psalm 144, happy are those who sit in the house of the Lord, uh, we began to see there are people who sit in the house of the Lord in meditation. And I think that's what that psalm was about, by the way. It was for those who sat in the meditation. It became clear to us that in our encounter we were put into a position which opened up for us the, if you will, the bravado or the, the sense of, 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 of mission that we have to recover those resources within Judaism as well. So we had this encounter. Everybody gave their thing. I, my job, I talked about the four paths, the four paths of Jewish interpretation, which you're all probably familiar with, called pardes, I won't give you the whole speech now. My job was to give him, we, we bought a facsimile, say for Torah, one of those in print ones in the Sephardic style as a gift. And I brought him a, a, a translation of Pirke Avot into Yiddish, which is my mammalush, and I want him to know that we had once 10 million Jews who spoke Yiddish. And he should know that this was was not just uh, something that happened for a while, and they were destroyed in the Shoah. And he really, he took that very seriously. He took that very seriously. I give him a lot of credit. Just an aside, he asked for the permission to attend, uh, to go to the Holocaust Museum the day before it opened. To make sure that he was there because he really understands this. He understands, I think this is what mostly makes him attracted to us, that we went through that, and we made it. And he said that's unbelievable. So he appreciates that. I really think he uh, has a deep appreciation for it. So back to what we were talking about, we each presented a uh, a speech, everybody, I think it was three three a day, and then responses, and the translators, it was very funny, because the translators were all, uh, the two major translators were jubus, One was from New Jersey, Alex Berzin, another was from from, uh, England, and they had been part of the Tibetan community for many years. Later, in the more informal conversations, we asked them, how'd you wind up here in Dharamsala? And the the classic answer was this. I was a spiritually curious young man in New Jersey in 1959, 60, 61, and I went to my rabbi and I said, I don't want to talk about God. He said, that's not for us to talk about. It's just not for us to talk about. It's just beyond what we do. But I'm looking for something. He says, well, sorry, this is what you get. This is what we have to serve you. You don't like it. And he didn't, so he went somewhere else. Well, whether it was Alan Watts or they actually read you know, some of the, uh, at that, to- at that, that point the, uh, you know, the, the Dalai Lama was, was a news figure, etc. And these people who came, many of them were tremendously high intellectuals and, the, and they became translators of, 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 of Tibetan very hard language and they became spokesmen for Tibetan Buddhism all over the world it's very fac- fascinating to see how many people of Jewish ba- background were involved there. But again, people who had sort of abandoned their Jewish, their Jewish lives in a sense. They were Jewish, they didn't deny it but didn't really feel any deep connection. So these translators would translate. The Dalai Lama understands English fairly well, but he doesn't always like to use it, so sometimes he gets tired and he wants to speak in Tibetan, and he can translate for us. Uh, And uh, the basic reaction was always uh, this feeling of the fact that we have a lot to share, that there was something familiar about each other, uh, that there was a sensitivity, the way we study text, the way the fact that there is a written tradition and an oral tradition, the fact that they uh, have a tremendous respect for study and l- learning. One of the most wonderful experiences was v- visiting their dialectical uh, college. Notice the term dialectical college. Anyone who's ever studied Talmud knows what dialectics are, right? This capacity of one thesis, to be brought to an antithesis, to reach to another thesis, right? And how was it done? It was done beautifully. We were there one day, and um, those of us who really, you know, are deep in rabbinic Judaism say, wow, this is what the academies must have been like in Babylonia, in Sura and Pumpedita, with students running around studying and going for exams. And the way it was, they very cute, they, they would have a, um, they would, they, the way they would play they didn't have a playground, they were older monks, young monks, is that they would have contests uh, like Torah contests. They call it Dharma contests. And one guy would get up, and his job was to pitch a teaching. And he would slap his hand like that, really. It was really amazing. He would pitch a teaching to a guy who was like a catcher <laughs> sitting on a stool, and instead of using a bat, he would come back with the right teaching back and the kids would be all around them clapping it was like it basically was a, it was such an example of a, an expression of the intellectual sport that they understood that that learning was such an experience for them that it was not only a fulfilling but entertaining as well yes please how did he regard or did he even comment about the inescapable irony of coming to you to learn about how you preserve preserved Judaism or how we pre- and being translated by people who had in a sense, forsaken their own roots to become part well, of... Well, I would say more than Judaism forsook them, to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that they... They, 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 they looked el- elsewhere, you know. Yeah. Look, uh, I, I don't want to... We can cut to the chase and we can op- open up for discussion, which might be a bad thing. At the end of our encounter, okay, we said, you know, we do have an ulterior motive for being here the way you have an ul- ulterior motive for us being here. You think we have an ordinate amount of power and that it's good for you to be aligned with the Jews in the world, right? And we said... <laughs> Eh, we don't have so much power, you know, and besides what, what's in it, you know, but, but it's good that we're together. You're not powerful. We're not powerful. You have only 6 million uh, Tibetans in the world. We have only 12 mil, mil, million Jews. Neither of us really have a, tr- a tremendous amount of autonomy in, in the world. But he said, yes, but you have now power. And we explained the whole power thing to him, and he was impressed by that. He said, that's important. You have power, and you now have a land which is your own, and you can return to that land. And we were, we, as spiritual as we are, this is what we're missing, is a place in the world. We need a place in the world. So we really, we really took that very much to heart. And then it, we also said to him, you know, there are many young Jews who have, are looking for spirituality, and many are coming to you. And after our encounter, and I can't go into all the details, you can read the book, with Reb Zalman talking about Kabbalah and, and, and all those things that resonated with him, he said very honestly, yes, I now can tell that young man or young woman that have they explored their own spiritual traditions? First, I can honestly now say it because I know you have a spiritual tradition. He didn't know. He didn't know. He doesn't know who we are, really. That's one of the reasons the conversation was so easy. There was no baggage. You go into the Jewish Christian, it's, take, it's taken us 40 years in the Jewish Christian dialogues that just unload the baggage. And we're still unloading the baggage. The Jewish Muslim, Fregnish, is going to be a long time, right, for the amount of baggage. Tibetans don't know who we are. They think, are oh, you like Muslims? They knew a couple of Muslims who were their sheikhs. They used to sheikh, sheikh the animals for them. But you like Muslims? Yeah, we're like Muslims. They didn't know we were. But at the end, he said, I will send someone back to you if you think that, uh, if, he, if he or she can find their place. But then he's a very clever guy. He says, but if they don't find it w- with you, even after they go back, then they're open season. <laughs> he didn't use those words. But he's right. And I tell you the truth. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I know this is being taped, but there are worse things that can ha- happen to your child than becoming a Buddhist. I, don't quote me on this. The rabbi is not to be quoted. But the point is, there are worse things. If this is the worst problem you're ever going to have in your life, this should be the worst problem you have in your life. However, what we've seen and what I think what we have benefited over the last 20 years from the, the, this encounter, and you've all been beneficiaries of it, is this tremendous amount of energy we brought back, all of us who became more in love with our tradition, myself and Yitz and Zalman and everybody else, to really, really uncover the wellsprings of of the spiritual paths within our own community. And these wellsprings are, of course, one, meditation, second, the idea that, that there is a reason to be Jewish that is beyond basically only national and ethnic identity. I think it's also going to be talk, talked about next year, but it's something we're all talking about now. What happens to Judaism when it stops being ethnic? Is that a great thing? Is it a bad thing? We don't know, except it's happening. <laughs> so It doesn't matter whether we think it's good or not. It's happening. And we also began to uncover the fact that we have within ourselves, within our own tradition, a tremendous amount of opportunities to bring people to a sense of, of, their, uh, of a deep connection to the divine, which in the Tibetan community is very... Palpable. It's palpable. And it's not that they have any theism, by the way. They don't have a god like we have. Tibetan Buddhism, Dafka, because of its particularity, has a lot of many gods. And from the outside, you look at it as as a uh, affirming Jew and you say, Oi, avoid the Zara. This is really, this is really idolatry because they have very ornate you know uh palaces and temples and and idols and et cetera. but but it's, but the bottom line is is once you get to a, a place to un, un, understand what their conception of the of, of god is or not god they don't believe in god but is is that you begin to understand that what they what they what the difference is between them and us and there are many differences is one that they still have not gotten to the place where they think it's important to educate their everyday folk we go out of our way to make sure everybody who wants it can be a- educated. On the contrary, it was, it's, it's almost like a sine qua non uh, of Jewish life is that Jewish householders would carry on the tradition. And that's what made us, that's why we're really here today. The Kohanim no longer can serve in the temple. What became the temple? Your house. Who became the Kohen? The father, the mother at the table. Who blesses the children? The parents give the priestly blessing. Who, where is the altar? It's now the table on which you eat. That's, by the way, the reason you have two halot. Because there were always 12, two rows of, of uh, six halot each, baked every week in the temple, the Mishnah, and that's why we have two halot. And, we used, and that's why in some families you're not supposed to tear halot. are supposed to use a knife, because you have to do like the shkita of the korbanot. And that's why we use salt. You know why we use salt? Because every korban had salt added to it. Why salt? Anyone know? A luxury. That's right. You paid somebody their weight in salt. And as a matter of fact, we have, a, we have a word we use now called salary, right? Because you were paid in salt. Why was salt important? If you have salt, you could eat meat not only the day it's killed. You can have deli all week. <laughs> Very important if you like deli. Uh, <laughs> not good for your ar- arteries, but hey, who could say no to good deli? So uh, the uh, the opening up... so. So in a sense, one of the things we, we, we discussed with them, we had the chutzpah to discuss with them, was this idea of now that they're in their churban, in their destruction, and their quote-unquote main temple, Lhasa, the portola in Lhasa is no longer theirs, and the traditional orders of the service can no longer be offered, maybe they should start educating their lay people. Maybe they should begin to think, and it's a chutzpah for us to even to say it, but they asked already, they asked they wouldn't have asked me, wouldn't have suggested it. Maybe they should maybe deal and think about the celibacy of their monks a little bit. That the best and the brightest are not reproducing. The best and the brightest are taken over at the age of five to seven. They go to a monastery, they'll never have kids. I mean, on the side, a few, questions. you know, on the side, they may have a few. But in reality, formally, they are not to be married. And if the best and the brightest don't reproduce, and you're only 6 million now. And you're being afflicted by modernity. And your kids who are now living in Varanasi and living in Ladakh and living in other parts of India are less and less interested in learning how to in Tibetan. They want to go to video games and they want to go to computers. And you have to figure out a way that they can do both. You've got to figure out a way that we struggle with here too, but how to do both. And one does not necessarily have to negate the other. And he took it very seriously. He took it very seriously. Matter of fact, one of the things he actually followed it up on right away was our discussion of Jewish summer camps. We talked about Camp Ramah. We talked about the Eisner camps. We talked about the fact that we take, he wanted to know how we work with education. We take our children out of the city and we bring them to a place, and all summer we teach them the prayers and songs in an environment of pleasure, etc. He says, wow, because they have a wonderful school up there called the Tibetan Children's Village in Dharamsala, and the weather in the summer there is much better than any other part of India. So he said, maybe you should start summer camps for a Tibetan who's living in other parts of India, and they'll come, you'll teach them how to and you'll teach them, you know, the prayers, they'll sing the songs, they'll keep the traditions going, etc." cetera, et cetera. He said, Psh. He said you know, he's Yiddish, by the way, he's superb. <laughs> a little Galatianish, but you, can't tell, you have to forgive him. You have to forgive him. That's where he, was. he came from, the Galaxianos part of Tibet. But, um, <laughs> so he actually sent, the following year, he sent a, a group of his ed- ed- educators to check out our summer camps. It was very interesting. So right away we saw that it was something we could deal with. But more importantly, I think for us and, and uh, f- then for them, was how they touched us and how they gave us an opportunity to say, you know what, we really should re-examine the reasons that we are here in this world and do we have a new mission what is our mission why are we here in this world I know we made it one of my teachers Label Fine who you probably all know you read his stuff Label Fine said every Jew should at one time in his life sit down at a piece of paper and say I want the Jewish people to continue to be alive because can you write that page you know why why? Why? What is it we really want to be doing? You see, to survive is wonderful, and every organism wants to survive. But it's never been enough for us. We've always well, said survive for what? Up. What? What do I want to be when I grow up? What is our continuing, ongoing contribution to the world? Because this is why we're here. We're here to be a goy kadosh. We're here to be a Mamlechat koanim. You notice that? We're supposed to be Bablech we're, HaKohanim. We weren't supposed to have a priesthood of, of only one tribe, you know. At one time, every tribe was to contribute the firstborn. That's why we have Pinyon Ben, you know, the ceremony. You redeem the kid. Because at one time, it would be that every firstborn of every tribe would be part of the kahuna, right? Part of the uh, priesthood. And uh, what ha- happened was that we also believed that it was possible for us to actually serve the world uh, and live a way in which our lives serve others. I know it sounds hard for us to really accept the fact that this was our mission, but this was our mission. The Torah was not given before we heard those words. Ko'anim. There's a deal to be made. Where does our mission? We can discuss it. Because not everybody here is going to agree. But at least we can be on the same page at least about disagreeing would be good too. At least we believe there is a mission. Because A lot of Jews believe it's, there is no mission for Jews. They don't believe it. They have nothing else. It's... it's uh, to be the butt of jokes, perhaps, or to be, you know, fashionable in some way, but there's no real mission of what it means to be a Jew. And this is what we really came back with. We came back with a sense of renewed mission, renewed enthusiasm, and more importantly, knowing that we have had some way of affecting the Tibetan community as well. And we've had some, I think we've made some contribution to them as well. I can't say we brought them back to Tibet. I don't think we'll ever get back to Tibet with the president of Chinese regime. to be very honest. But we do the best we can. We do the best we can. But we're not, we can't deliver what they ultimately want. But yet they have given us much more than we ever expected to get. So this was a very fruitful relationship that's continuing to happen to this very day. And we hope it will continue. But the irony is is that they're going to dissipate as a community. They're just going to dissipate. One thing that helps them a little bit is there's a constant flow of people being smuggled out of China into India. Constant flow of people being smuggled out. And ironically, one of my teachers, Everett Gendler, Rabbi Everett Gendler, he should live live and be well, goes to India every year, believe it or not, a rabbi and his wife, to teach nonviolence to these refugees because they're coming out much less, much less passive about how to deal with the Chinese than the Dalai Lama's position, which is nonviolence. They think the only way you can really achieve the goals because they've seen what's going on in the world is by bombing Chinese embassies, bombing Chinese facilities in Tibet, making it uncomfortable for the Chinese to be there, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Dalai Lama's commitment, as long as he's been alive, has been to doing this in a nonviolent way, and I give him a tremendous amount of credit. He has brought the plight of the Tibetans to the world, but as many young Tibetans would say, that's not enough. The people should have Rahmanis for us is not, not enough. Let's see some action. So there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes now that's very dif- different than it was 20 years ago, etc. And it's quite remarkable that a r- rabbi from here is going there to teach uh, nonviolence. And that's another way that we interact. We teach each other. We try to Who keep each other. Rabbi? rabbi Everett Gendler. He's a pacifist rabbi and the grandfather of the echo jewish uh, you know, things. He's teaching. Uh, Musty A J Musty Jewish Peace Fellowship. Okay, so uh, he no, he, he he's part of the Jewish Peace Fellowship, well, etc. But he can't find anything in Judaism as pacifist because right. there isn't anything in Judaism as pacifist. <laughs> right. right. That's not that's not one of our strong points. On the other hand, we're also not uh, predators. You know what I mean? Yeah. We believe you know if someone comes to kill you, you got to kill him. We're not uh, we're not you know there was a time when that wasn't the case, by the way. You know the uh, so-called Hasidim uh, Rishonim. In the days of uh, the Maccabees, they allowed themselves to be killed on Shabbat. That was a big deal. When they, uh, the Maccabees, said, "You know, we have to change things. That we will, uh, we will fight even on Shabbat uh, in order to defend ourselves." But whatever it is, that there is a, a tremendous kind of interweaving of interests that keep us together, and uh, to, and we hope that it will continue. Just from a point of view of friendship. Now, as you heard, as I heard, we all heard a few months ago, the Dalai Lama has stepped down as the political leader of Tibet and uh, has given it over to a young man who we happen to know, who's just is going to be the new prime minister. He's a uh, uh, fellow at the Harvard Law School, and uh, he's a lovely young man, and he's going to be taking on a job that I don't envy anybody t- taking on, to be the prime minister of the Tibetans. Uh, and uh, there's something very dangerous going on because the Chinese are so, so committed to the destruction of Tibetan culture. I mean, committed. It's not just they, they want to see it, uh, you know, weak, weak, and they want to stamp it out. Is that there's a tremendous fear that when the Dalai Lama passes on after many many years of good health, they will appoint another Dalai Lama in China. They've done done that for the last 50 years. There's a there is a uh, Panchen Lama that was uh, Panchen Lama appointed by the Tibetans, and there's a Panchen Lama appointed by the Chinese. So there might be a Chinese government official Dalai Lama <laughs> and a Tibetan exile Dalai Lama, and he trying, he's, he's such a, you know, a, a radical thinker that he said maybe the way to deal with it is do away with the whole way of reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. I mean, for the sake of saving, he's willing to break with the tradition. Whether they'll allow him, the people, I don't know. But right now, you know, the basic way a Dalai Lama is reappointed. They look for signs, imanim. Uh, and they have a, a lake they look at. It's a very f- interesting way. They appointed the next one. The way he was appointed, people came to his house when he was three, and it was like winning home publishing really the lottery. <laughs> came to your house, and they, I mean, you did it. You, you win the lottery. You're the Dalai Lama. They bring the sticks of the Dalai Lama, the preferred one. That they, they, does he pick them up, not pick them up? He's taken them for the age of three, and he's raised in the, with the monks, and, uh, and he's given a tremendous amount of uh, spiritual education. I'm Lama. Lama. you the Lama. That's going to happen. Know, but, but how could he put an end to it? Because he would theory. say that the he's way it... Right. No, but he, before he dies, he might say, don't look for a replacement for me. So anyone who claims to be the Dalai Lama is basically a fraud. We're ending this system. The Chinese are continuing it. It's not because of us. They're doing it because they want to control political events. I mean, that's one thing you say. There'll be no, no more spiritual kind of leadership, there'll be temporal leadership. And he's setting that up now because he wants to stop being the temporal leader. He doesn't want to be the political leader anymore. He he actually got fascinated by something in the last 30 years that fascinates many of us. It's called democracy. Because there was no democracy in Tibet. It's a theocracy. He says, wow, this democracy thing, this is really amazing. This is a powerful tool. So he has worked hard and hard and hard for his Tibetan people to learn about dem- democracy. There should be a government. There should be people who vote for each other, all that kind of stuff, which, of course, is antithetical to what's going on in China as well. So it's a very interesting political play. and we'll he see. Step down while he's alive from that role? Not really. Well, he has stepped down from the temporal role, but right. not, not, not the spiritual role, because he's considered, know I mean, this is a, a, a tough for us as Westerners, he's considered God. Right. He's God. <laughs> so you can't step down from being God. As Mel Brooks would say, it's good to be God. It's, yeah, it's good to be God. If you have a choice, it's good to be God. Yeah. If someone asks if you're God, you say yes. That's from Ghostbusters. But, uh, I guess so. I guess so. So, so it's it's it, so. Who would have thought? I would never in my life have thought. A nice Jewish boy with yeshiva in Brooklyn, that I would be sitting uh, in a room with the Dalai Lama. This is a, only. Possible in this new world of the, if you will, the collision of cultures. It's a much smaller planet than I ever thought it would be. And for our kids, it's even getting smaller and smaller. And the question is, will small peoples on this earth be permitted the chance to survive? That's really the challenge. Will they be, and the Dalai Lama gave us one last teaching, and then we'll open up for some conversation. We'll do a little med- meditation with you as well, I'd like to do. Uh, is, is, he talked about the fact that so many people now are so concerned about uh, the ecology, and rightly so. Right? Because we read a few weeks ago. The earth is the Lord's and we really are here as stewards. We're basically renting. If we think we're buying, we're really making a mistake. And he said, so is it with spiritual life. There's a certain spiritual ecology we have to keep going. And there are ancient wisdom traditions that go back and we are literally every year, I know that's not on our consciousness, we are losing ancient wisdom traditions. Small tribes here and small tribes there. Things that we still haven't deciphered even are being, if you will, destroyed. Destroyed by the ongoing uh, civilizational moves of our societies around the world. So he said one of the things we have to do is be close to each other because ultimately we need to have a spiritual ecology. We have to have different wisdom traditions. And my Rabbi Zalman, my teacher, has been very clear to us as students, we, we ha- should never make a claim, never make the claim that we have have it all. should never have the chutzpah. Of any one tradition to say they got all the answers. That's a triumphalism we can no longer afford. And it's absolutely not true, besides that. So we have need each other in a way that we never need each other before. And the fact that they helped us recover our meditative practices, and yes, in the beginning it sounds like it's just Buddhism with a little yamak on it. Yes, 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 I agree. But it's getting us to be go and mine our resources. And we're beginning to realize that when it said in Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, that was said quite a long time ago, Psalm 19. David HaMelech wrote it a long time ago. Why? Because he knew people were offering up both words and meditations. So meditations were part of our tradition. It's not something that we just borrowed. The question is, we, with the losses we had in the Shoah, we lost a whole a string of people who were connecting us to that. They were gone because there were meditative practices going on in many of the Hasidic groups and all through, we lost them. We had a horrible catastrophe. And it's only 75 years, and it takes a long time, if ever, that we're going to be able to reconnect. The mere fact that we're here talking in, you know, in in sunny California, you know, I don't take for granted. And you shouldn't either. Going back to the beginning of my talk, he wanted to know how come we're here. And That's the challenge that he gave to the Jewish community. Why are we here? Why are you here? Let's sit with our back straight, feet in front of us. Ah, <sighs> take a big, a big, nice breath. A yahoy, a good yah. Ah, and just relax yourself a bit. Feel your own weight in the chair. It's a very simple thing, but not easy, of course. Be here now. Wherever you've been, you're no longer there. Wherever you're going, you're not there yet. The challenge for most of us is being here in the now. And one way we do this is by paying attention. Feeling the weight in the chair, noticing where our our body is noticing our breath, our body contracting and expanding with each breath. Having the capacity to be grateful for the fact that we need not be conscious of breathing. God forbid we ever have trouble breathing, then we become very conscious of it. So we're grateful for the gift of breath. In Hebrew, you all know the word for breath is Nishima," the same word as nishama, as "soul." We are grateful every morning to have this soul return to us. And as we're sitting here, we're telling ourselves stories. Every one of us is telling a story to themselves. Oh, did I leave something in my room? When's dinner? When's this guy going to stop talking? Does he really want us to be quiet? That's impossible. I'm a Jew. A Jew can't be quiet. Whatever story you have, it's it's just a story. Because right now, the only thing that's real, as much as we can fathom, is you're here right now, on a chair. Whatever happened yesterday, you know what? You can't go back. If you're anxious about tomorrow, don't be. It's not here yet. And that's the whole Torah. Chaim Kulchem Hayom. Can you be truly alive today? Hayom Mayom Mayom. Remember that? Remember Yom Kippur? Today, today, today. So for a moment or two, just sit and notice that your breath expands your s- chest when you inhale, contracts when you exhale. And when the story is taking you astray, just come back to your breath. Liberate yourself from the flow of thoughts, which will never stop, as long as you are a sentient being, as long as you are alive, we hope. Again, if you're telling yourself stories, that's fine. Just let them go. If it's a great idea you have, I promise you, if it's really that great, it'll come back to you. Notice your chest rising and falling. They are leaving and entering your nostrils. The basis of your own existence right here, right now. Sitting and celebrating being is what Shabbat is all about. It comes from the word La to sit. And part of every Shabbat should be given over to some meditative practice, some capacity to be still with oneself, (coughs) even in the midst of community, to find that space. Hamakom, one of the names of God that space into which we can truly be. As Ram Dass once said, we're not human doings, we're human beings. We often forget that, and that's why we have the gift of Shabbos. What is your comfort with silence or your discomfort with it? You're losing your trend just take a deep breath or two and get back to it don't worry your breath will always be there The underlying structure of all of our Tfilot is breath. Elohai neshama shenatat abit ahora, the breath you have given me is pure and clean. Kolhan shama hallelujah, let every living breath praise your name. In the breath of every living thing, praise your name. Waves of the sea, the inward and outward movement. the sea within us. Our capacity to receive and to give. all to be found in our very breathing, our very being alive. It's simple, but it's not easy. Khol Hanke Te Wahleliah Hallelujah. hallelujah. Khol Hanke Te Wahleliah Hallelu-A,й Lu- restricts Te Wahleliah Hallelujah. Co lanciama. Te Hallelujah. 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 Alleluia, halleluia, halleluia, halleluia. Alleluia, halleluia, halleluia. open your eyes, please do. I want to add two postscripts to what I've talked about. <sighs> two uh, marvelous consequences of uh, the trips. Well, three, really. One is a personal one. I was on the uh, flight back from India with my t- teacher, Reb Zalman, where he uh, challenged me uh, to become a rabbi. Uh, I had been acting as a rabbi in many ways because of my education. I was an academic and taught in the academic community and then spent about 12 years wandering around, living by my wits, giving work- workshops, etc. And I had resisted becoming a rabbi because I wanted to be a post-denominational one. Uh, and I said, look, everybody projects the rabbi crap on you all the time. You know what, what you want to be a rabbi for. But he said, no, 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 you've got to find a base, rabbi Moshe, and this and that. And I sort of listened with one ear, you know, And as would have it when I came back to Boston, um, uh, sometimes things are bashert, you know, bashert, meant to be. By the way, there's another Yiddish word which means when it it, it, it doesn't work out the way you like like it, and you don't want to say bashert, you say (laughs) fafal. You know, I can't do anything about it. (laughs) It's funny, right? You say it's bashert, and then you say, ah, but uh, Fafal. Uh, and I, I met Rabbi Ar- 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 Arthur Green, another teacher of mine had come to Brand- Brandeis and, uh, and others, and, and I started a smicha program uh, for about six years of study with uh, three wonderful m- mentors, so of my own personal life. But another uh, two things happened. One was uh, the Cummings Foundation, uh, which at that time the Jewish part of the foundation was being uh, directed by a woman named Rachel Cowan, named Stryker Bell, with any of you. Uh, uh, Rachel uh, invited a group of rabbis to a, a retreat to be led by a very well-known teacher in the uh, American Buddhist community named Sylvia Borstein. I, mean, I know her. She's based in Spirit Rock up in the Mill Valley uh, in Marin County. Um, and she uh, did the first training for those three days of rab- rabbis uh, in a silent retreat in Barry, Massachusetts, which is where Insight Meditation has its headquarters. Uh, Inside Meditation was a meditation brought here from Thailand. It's a Theravadan South uh, Asian meditation brought here by, uh, sounds like a law firm, Salzburg, Goldstein, and Cornfield. right? <laughs> uh, Jack Kornfield uh, and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzburg. And they, uh, of course, again, it's a very similar story. Jews who did not find it in their own tradition. They were doing Peace Corps work, found it in Tha- Thailand. <coughs> brought it back, brilliantly deculturalized it, psychologized it, and brought a technique that has been, look, it's 35 years now since then, and they've developed and they've moved in very wonderful ways, and that's where I've got my training and, you know, because I had no place to go. That was the thing, I had no place to go. So she starts uh, this class with a rab- rab- rabbi, sponsored by the Cummings Foundation, and I love rabbis, but not talking to rabbis is even better. <laughs> it was fantastic be in a room with 30 rabbis and not talk. It was fantastic, you know. And from that, a series of trainings began, and I was in one of the first two-year trainings with Sylvia Borstein uh, for rabbis to bring meditation into their communities. And uh, it's still going on. It's being done in a number of different ways. Rachel, when she left Cummings, set up a thing called the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and they train rabbis and cantors. uh, And meditation is a very big piece of it. But what what I did in order to, you see, the only way you pay back your teachers, as you know, in, in, in your life, you can't, you can't pay them back. You can only take their teachings and move it forward. That's, that's your whole, that's the thing. You gave me something, you know, I can't give you anything back for it. I can just be grateful and give it out to somebody else. That's the way we do it. So uh, a number of years ago, not too many years ago, I started a, uh, an organization called Nishmat Chaim, the Breath of Life Jewish Meditation Collaborative, and our goal and it's struggling because it's hard, to get, you know, it's hard to get people to buy into this consciousness. They see it as a certain kind of... They have a very negative sense that, that meditation leads to passivity. Passivity. Where they don't understand that it's the contrary. Meditation is an energizing factor. Second, they have this... Uh, misconstru- people have misconstrued that, oh, I can never meditate because I can never clear my mind of thought. And that's exactly what you don't do. So there's a certain kind of resistance that people have where they see it as something still a bit flaky uh, or a little bit marginal. Or Certainly, why should I support middle-aged Jews who want to sit on their asses? <laughs> Give me at least one cleft palate, kid, somewhere to support. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, from a fund- fundraising part of you. But the goal that we have, and we're getting there, Baruch Hashem, little by little, is that every shul in New England will have a contemplative group that would balance the heavy transcendence of the Shabbat morning service, which I've heard a lot about today from people who really have problems with it. And it's why perhaps a lot of people don't come to shul as often, because it's something that they really can't deal, deal, deal with. And balance it with, uh, with something, uh, uh, have a group that would be there all the time doing the inner work too. So the tension between the two can be much more helpful rather than see one as the opposite, but really have a nice tension going in. And we're seeing more and more rabbis, more and more congregations saying we must be doing these things because it's uh, creating one different avenues of access into the community, but more importantly, because we have not created a community that appreciates the now. We have a community that is always regretting the past and fears fearful of the future. And look, yeshbazed mashuho. You know, we shouldn't. We shouldn't say it's totally silly that we do that. But when you live with one foot over here, in the past and one in the future, you leave your balls exposed. It's very bad, <laughs> very dangerous. You know what I mean? You You. It's. It's not. Not a good. Good. Good position to be in. It's good to also be in the now, and that's what I think meditation can bring communities. And not only meditation, we're doing chanting, and now we're having a. We have a Boston just started a chanting group, Gananohara. There's a couple of guys bringing now, we have a new guy in town, I don't know if he's traveling around now, the Kirtan Rabbi, Oscar yeah, Hert. He's bringing Indian Kirtans, uh, which is basically call and response, which is all of what our davening used to be, by the way. We, before we had books, it was call and response, right? He said, and they would say, Kilo right? It wasn't, you know, It wasn't like, you know, page 73, stand up. It was part of what you grew up with. It was the tribal chants. You know, by the way, Maasai warriors don't bring their kids to Maasai Hebrew school in the afternoons twice a week, so they'll do all right at the Maasai puberty ceremony. (laughs) What do they do? You live in that culture, and you go to every one of the events, and guess what? You pick it up. You know, and that what's expected of you. You see, that's the thing that a pre-modern culture was at least that had the sense of where you, where your place was. And I think that's where we, we've really lost this idea of place. So to sit in place, to have all those things, the now. How do we teach our kids that you know it's okay to be here in the now? You don't have to be tweeting all the time. You don't have to be some someplace else. And that's what Shabbos is it's such a gift. Friends is such a gift. Get away from the computers. Get away from the... I asked more and more people what would they want to be liberated from, and more and more people are saying technology, technology, technology. They feel enslaved by it. It's like Pavlovian dogs. The thing rings, and you're there, you're salivating, you have to be there. Even there's now phantom, uh, feelings of phantom vibrations that people are having when they don't, they're not near their phones. <laughs> Hopefully in the right place, but not always. <laughs> but... Phantom vibration. It's amazing. It's, it's, there's a certain psychosis that is actually being created by our technologies, and our technologies are, are so fantastic in some ways. I mean, uh, I mean what we can do, can I, or I can take a picture of my toenail and send it to, <laughs> send it to China and, and, and have someone discuss it. I mean, it's a fantastic. In 140 letters. It's amazing. Who would have thought we would have got to that place? On the other hand, our moral evolution is slower. Well, I don't know if it's going the other way. We're still killing each other. no. Whether it's part of you... I think it's the biggest question I get from my uh, con- con- congregants. Uh, should we as Jews be resigned to human nature being what it is? Or do we really truly believe one can perfect human beings? And I say the answer is yes and no. <laughs> we work at it. We don't give up. We know that human beings can't be perfected, at least to get to a place where... They see the Salem Elohim, the image of God in the other, we hope, and then realizing that by diminishing the other, they diminish themselves. This would be a very high level to do it, but we're still we're working at it. Yes, let's open it up. Eddie. Have you ever been to a Quaker meeting? Yes, I love Quaker meetings. They're great. And there, they just, you know, they, they have this vibe, the vibes are strong. There's something about sitting in meditation in a group or silence in a group that is, people don't realize it. You never have to know the person's name. You never have to talk to them and you feel connection. I was at a retreat once and I had to leave early and I got a note from somebody, oh, I'm sorry you're leaving early, I miss you. I'll miss you, I, said, I don't know who you are. But you sat in that place. You took that place of Earth, you gave it that energy. And you know what, you helped me because you know what, I'm sitting in this place of the Earth. It's, it's, it's Givaldic stuff, it's very, very Givaldic. But let's hear a little bit more questions and comments. We have a few more minutes. Anybody? Or answers for a change. If anyone has an answer, please, I'd love to have an answer. <laughs> Yes, please. I, I guess, is it true Ben-Gurion would go to India before Israel was um, founded? Yeah, he was, he, a, uh, he uh, was a yogi, yeah. He, he, he did yoga. He was a very devoted yoga uh, person. And uh, he learned it from a number of Indians that he knew. And he had very good relations with a number of uh, yogi masters, right, who came to Israel as well. Yeah, he was very, very much... Uh, a, a, he actually was able to do a handstand. Hard There's to believe. that a photo of yeah, little, little, right, little roly-poly Jew. Jew. Yeah. But if he could do it, we all can do it. Did it didn't yeah. help him at all? Did it help him at all? It helped, helped because him because he survived the Jews. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> right? Paul, you know, with Gentiles, is one thing, imagine being a Prime Minister of the Jews. Can you imagine that? Uh, Who made you Prime Minister? You know the other thing? Ah, you're the Prime Minister. But I'm saying he... Uh, whether or not uh, you're a pro-Bengurian or not big group, I think I think uh, it helped him a great, great deal. Yes, yeah, please. You know, this is a it's sort of a more intense question, and it's personal, people here know me, but our, our son is an atheist. He's 18. Uh, he doesn't know enough to be an atheist. <laughs> okay. uh, Chutzpah is an atheist. He knows everything, you know? He's 18, so yes. He yeah, he thinks he right. knows everything. All right, all right. that was is, Yeah, yeah. so disrespectful right. to, to yeah. my faith and, um, yeah. you know, belief. And so, you know, as somebody who believes that there's, he's very Jewish, by the way, wants to go to Israel, whatever, <laughs> but how do you answer someone who says, there is no God, and, you know, do you just say, okay, I mean, this is my son we're talking about, so I feel, uh, to uh, it's it's, lost, it's really irrelevant, I'm sorry to say. You know, why it's re- irrelevant ultimately because, you uh, if it was not based on faith uh, it's, it, there is no possibility of, of, of proving this, all of medieval philosophy ended with Kant and Kant said there's a certain level where human logic is going to get you and that's where we should go, we shouldn't even bother with metaphysics, and there's a certain part of me that agrees with that completely that I want to act as if, now that's a question I don't think you need to have a God to be moral, I, really, I absolutely agree, agree with that Right. Yes, I think. Look, if you move to Israel, he'll be very comfortable. Eighty-five a- percent of the people would agree with it. right? <laughs> that there is, there's no need for God, and, and whether they are more moral or less moral is not the issue. But the question becomes, as a Jew, uh, and this of a shetikle Kaplanian, we're all a little bit Kaplanians now, you know, because he said, yes, yes, I may not see this as the main thread of my connection to my civilization, because there are artistic connections and cultural connections. And, historical connection. But in the tapestry of Jewish life, I also cannot, in a sense, ignore the fact that there's been a very strong God thread that has had thousands of years of impact upon not only the Jews, but upon the entire world. Now, the question is, is is asking what's the God he doesn't believe in? And invariably I've talked this with you already. It's going to be Zeus. I don't believe in Zeus. and that's why, uh, you know, I, I really think that's really our, where we have to be more mature. And he's a young person who's still rebelling and sees God as an act of rebellion. And he also knows it pushes your buttons. It's a very good thing to know that he can find something that mamish pushes your buttons and gets you pissed. Because then he can act even worse because he says, see, you're not an open-minded person. I'm so open-minded. But no, he's not open-minded because if was open-minded, he would respect the fact that you have your belief system. Because I'm not asking everybody to believe the same thing. As a matter of fact, I'm even, as I said this morning, I may even ask you to believe. I think "believe" is the wrong word. Are you a seeker? What are you seeking in your life? And to be a Jew, we have a lot of stuff we bring from the past. And to say this was, this was better, this was worse, certainly we make judge judgments. But I cannot see that our millennial faith in the future, Without that, I don't think we would have really made it here. We had this, imagine, you know, my parents were whole, whole Holocaust survivors and they decided to have children in DP camps in Germany. And ich frage sich allein, I asked myself, would I have done that after what I've seen? Why? Because they had faith that maybe what happened to them would not happen to somebody else and the world would pay attention. They were wrong, <laughs> but, they had, but that was their faith. I mean, And the power of that faith was not based upon a... A, a particular theological position. It was, a, it, it was a, a faith in the fact that we are part of an ongoing, if you will, spiritual microcosm of an organism. We are part of something larger than ourselves. That's what I think they had. Now, it wasn't Rabanne Shluelin. That was with my mother in, 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 in the Shoah. She's the one who taught me. It's not Rabanne Shluelin, the deus ex machina, that's going to come to the third act and save the day. He put his hand down and stop the Nazis, the bad Nazis. <laughs> It's the God in you, the God that goes into hell with you, the God, your Jiminy Cricket God, if you want, <laughs> who sits on your shoulder, the deep place that you, who, 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 who and the Kalman <laughs> talks already about it. The, the, the Shekhinah goes, to the gull is with you. The Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, is with you. So it's a God of consolation rather than the God of salvation. It's a different kind of thing. I think, and that's a, that's a very Christian thing. We want the God to be the God of salvation. For us, it's more, what does God do for us? It gets us through life. I think this is what we're, as moderns, I think we have to really accept. I, I don't think we can prove anything. So the question is, can you be a Jew totally without having this God thread somewhere in you? And, and can he marry Jewish and, and keep? Well, the marrying Jewish is a whole different Geschichte. Now, the marrying Jewish, uh, this is where talk, you'll, be, you'll be talking about this for a long time. We all will. Uh, you know, look, I, look, we're all in the same boat, you know. Uh, I'm in a congregation where I'm moving. I don't perform interim marriages. And I'm starting for the first time at 62 to think about what I should be doing in these these cases. And I'm coming up with an idea, which may or may not work, We'll see. called a a Ben Noach or Bat Noach marriage. You may be familiar with Benin Noach, right? Uh, There are seven uh, mitzvot of Benin Noach. Uh, It comes out of a paragraph written right after the rainbow was put in the sky. There's a paragraph in the Torah saying there should be a Brit and this Brit is mentioned seven times. So uh, a rabbi is asked, why seven times? It's not to say Brit once. So each of, the, of these mentions of the word Brit, covenant, has been interpreted by our tradition to mean seven mitzvot. Six are neg- negative mitzvot and one is a positive mitzvot. And any human being who observes these is a mensch. And halabai, the whole world, would observe these, and we would have a civilized world. They're very simple but not easy, shouldn't murder, <laughs> shouldn't steal, shouldn't be involved in blasphemy, shouldn't be an idolater, you shouldn't be involved in uh, uh, sexual behavior that's not proper, coercive sexual behavior, you shouldn't eat an animal while it's alive, I mean you have, to be cr- you have to be not cruel to a- animals, and you should, the seventh one is a positive one, and it's the t- toughest one of all, establish courts of justice where these things will be maintained. Right, So if you look at it, it's akin to the Eightfold Path of the Buddha. Very similar, right, of where you are. And uh, a person who does these laws and lives among you is called a ger toshav, green card Jew. Something like a great Chinese name, right? Green card Jew, right? <laughs> not, yet a, not yet a citizen, right, but a green card. And what does that person accept it? And I find this to be, this might be a very plausible way to do this because... Uh, that person accepts I will live in a Jewish rubric of calendar I'm not obligated to observe but I will be supportive of my family being in the Jewish community because my spouse wants to be a Jew Uh, I'm no longer anything else either I'm a mensch (laughs) Uh, who is working towards bringing the world to being civilized and we we mention them all the time every time we sing Hallel We call them Yireh Hashem, God-fearers, right? We say children of Aaron, children of Israel, and the God-fearers. Who are they? Anybody who is a Yireh Hashem, a God-fearer, or in awe of God, is a better way of saying it, will not kill you. So the two midwives in Shemot who saved the baby boys are called Yireh Hashem. And malek is not Yireh Hashem. That's why we've got to be careful about malek. So we have to encourage as many more Yireh Hashem to exist. And they've always been part of our community. We've had, for thousands of years, we had hangers on. And uh, maybe that's a way to do it. And you, and, you, and you make a very honest tukba. You don't just do a Jewish wedding and, you know, and blah, blah, blah. You put a rainbow talus up. You, do, you make it very clear what's being said. And maybe that would be a way for us, because I know many of the people that Jews are marrying are not marrying Jews, uh, people who are church people. They're not church. They're looking for something as well. And in many cases, they are embracing a Jew because they like Judaism. I, I don't think they're doing it because they're anti-Semitic. You know what I mean? Uh, they see something about, about Jewish life that they find uh, the Jewish person. And many times I hear, they say, you know, I really feel I'm, I'm getting a family in a way that I didn't have before. I hear it time and time again, because it matters for us. It really matters for us in a way that may not matter. Yes, please. You. Uh, you're saying, you um, how, do you, how do you deal with your congregation? With I'm the only with, God in the congregation. <laughs> <laughs> with, 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 with the Sidur, the whole liturgy. I mean, uh, look, you, you, we, we talk about this. Yes, the Sidur, by the way, is, doesn't talk about God's intervention. It just talks about our the fact that God is, that God is seen as a transcendent being. But it doesn't say in the Sidur, you, we, we hope that you will intervene. Now, the question is how do you intervene? Because even the ones who believe that God is transcended do not believe that God has a body. Nobody believes God has a body. <laughs> Nowhere in our tradition. I don't care if you're... You know, what the issue is, is how does God manifest? So yes, I can pray for God's help, but I have to do it. Because the hands of God are at the end of your arms. And the feet of God are at the end of your feet. That's why there is no arm that can... It says, Zerod Niditu So you read the Rambam on this. Rambam is great for this. As Rambam will say these are all metaphors don't take them seriously then write it differently no, you, you, see, I would say no, I understand your issue with it understand that these are poetic forms they are written about an attempt to be close to the transcendent you would not say that about Rumi poetry that says the same thing about being close to the transcendent and you wouldn't say it about Buddhist poetry but somebody, as a Jew it bothers you and this is a bias that Jews have. Everybody else is better than the Jews are. So it's poetry. You want to learn better Hebrew, you'll enjoy it more. It's repetitive? Absolutely. Find a way to get your synagogue to cut out you know, 14 psalms that don't have to be said. Right? Bring it down to the nitty gritty. It's service doesn't have to be more than one hour. It doesn't have to be more than one hour. I'm sorry that the, uh, we have to attach the Torah service on to be very honest. But they were never together. They were separate. Torah service was never done in shul. It was done in shul a little bit, but it was in the marketplace. You were supposed to read in the marketplace. Ezra comes back and says, read it. So we should be going to the mall. In front of Fashion Island. And uh, reading Torah. Because that's where Torah has to be heard in the, in, in the world. But I agree. I think that we're not going to throw the door out yet. There were attempts to do it. And it's amazing to me how all of those attempts have failed reform came on and they would get rid of this and this archaic and this and that and guess what they're coming back to it. I'm just not ready yet. It's, a, look, it's, a, it's certainly a pre-Shoah document. If you believe the Shoah really had an effect upon our theology, which I think it did, right? As, as Yitz said, I'm sure he was here and talk, talked about it, right? we're now in a new voluntary covenantal situation, right? Then yes, but but on the other hand, on the other hand, what it still does, for good or for bad, is allows me to go to shul in Marrakesh. And we can adapt and adapt. I mean, the, the tune may be different, it's not, but the point is, it's still a passport still to the Jewish world. Now, unless we all agree to do it, and this is where reform came back, because they realized by not doing it, they were taking themselves out a little bit. And now they're back, and I'm glad, because I think they're supposed to be reform as a verb, so they're supposed to be changing all the time. To be a reformed Jew is to be somebody who's not stuck in an Orthodox pattern. <laughs> but all of us becomes Orthodox with a small O. Rabbi, why did you change the tune? I just got used to it. You know that kind of stuff. I get it all the time. right? Because after four weeks of the same tune, I'm tired of it. You know. But it, right? but it takes me, do it for six months, Rabbi. At least six months. You know. Then I'll get it. You know. I said, Look, I'll make your recording. You'll be fine. And yeah. Uh, so you were talking about at the end of your talk about meditation that. Inwardness doesn't take you out of the world, and it's in, it doesn't disengage you, you. Disengage right? You. right. Um, so it seems like there are two rapidly growing trends in Judaism. There's the one, two, but there's the the stream that says inwardness and meditation and chanting, and there's the tikkun olam and and. Yeah, okay, okay. Um where do those two well, I'm, I'm saying they, where do those two come together? How do they intersect, right? How do they complement each other? I am not convinced that you can do anything for anybody outside of yourself until you're comfortable with yourself. Otherwise it's just a facade. It's simple. It's easy. You know, I, I can be for the other, for the underdog, and this, this is why a lot of the, the politics of the world is so lethal today. They're for the current underdog. So now it's the Palestinians. Next week will be somebody else. Understand? So whoever is not in the underdog position doesn't get, get, get support. It's fashionable, it's trendy. Uh, so there are, I would say that any, anybody who wants to be part of the Jewish tradition has many options, it's true. But what I like about meditation is that it's silent, and thus someone who doesn't quote unquote believe, or someone who does believe, or someone who's a seeker or not a seeker, but they, they can get something from the actual technique that will enhance whatever they want to do. So we say, the Talmud tells us that there was a group who sat for one hour before davening. And when you're on a a retreat, a seven day retreat, and you get that two or three hours of meditation before you daven, it's amazing how it enhances your davening. It doesn't take away from your davening. Because it gives you something that you need, which is space. Because we pour a lot of words in. And if you don't have space, you become like a saturated lawn. The words just come and go off, go off, go off, go off, go off. So this is just a supportive technique. It's not a value system. It's not an end in itself, it's a technique. No, it can't it. be an end in itself because you have to eventually stand up. I wish I could sit. I'm an older Jew now. I wish I had a rocking chair with a pipe, but I can't. I have to get up. No, I mean, I have to literally, I have to... You have to stand up for something. You have to stand up eventually for something. It doesn't mean you have to stand up without the capacity of understanding what's going on within, in, in yourself. Being what Meditation, when it works, and I'm look, I'm not a master, i have not enlightened, you know, even people who are enlightened have to keep going on, is that how do you stop being reactive? That's the real issue. And you can be reactive in negative ways, you can be very reactive in even positive ways, which are reacting without thinking, without f- making it coming out of a real place. I, I, I'm, I'm for forward, it forward because it's the, it's the hip thing to be this week. Do I really know about that For Do I really care about that For Have I become numb to all that suffering? You know, I see pictures, et cetera, et cetera. These are really deep questions. And I understand that it's hard to say that we should not be socially engaged. Of course we have to be socially engaged. But you also have to be real about the fact that you may not change the world right away. Meanwhile, what do you do about yourself? And you remember this nice old story, right? When I was young, I was going to change the world. Got a little older, I will work in my community. Remember that? Get a little older, I'll work on my family, right? And finally, he said, gee, I should have been working on myself all along. That was the whole, that, that's my responsibility, ultimately, too, to work on yourself. Because if you don't work on yourself, uh, who's going to do it? <laughs> you know? Uh, so I don't see any contradiction. On, on the contrary, I think uh, uh, <laughs> one the exact one, stronger, yeah. Yes, I mean, though, we'll do, it. We'll do two more questions. Yeah, and two I, more. I, right. I, uh, I grew up, and I thought I was Jewish. You grew up? You don't, I didn't think so. <laughs> I was growing up and I thought I was Okay, kid. good. And then, um, yeah, I've asked, very much like you guys are having struggle with what do you tell your children, how do you communicate with your children, okay. I realized that I had no idea what it meant to be a believer in God until I had children. Okay. They taught you something. Well, absolutely. And I didn't understand what it would be, what it meant to have faith until my brother was killed. Oh. No, it's a tough way of learning. it. <laughs> okay but I re- I only realized that when I had my own my first child, and then when I had a tragedy. What do I tell my children? Don't Not, wait, don't wait. Don't wait, and that's, that's fine. It. That's what you can say. You can only share your experience with children. I found this out, because I'm a very enmeshed father, and I'm every day <laughs> learning and trying to teach myself. The most you can say is, let me tell you about my experience. You'll do what you'll do in your life. That's the most I can do, and to have any expectation, is Oiske Don't even bother. I'll give me a little meisle before that. What says Rabbi Steinsalz, who's a very well known rabbi? He was here. He was here. He was here. He's a strange guy, by the way. Very strange. Yes. He could be, be a little bit. All right, whatever. Whatever. Not, you know, not, but he, he was asked at a, uh, at a luncheon I was at with him by one of the people, says, Why is there no mitzvah to love your parents? So he wanted a mitzvah to love your parents, this guy he says, love God and love your neighbor. He even <laughs> love the stranger, it says. Love the stranger. But why doesn't say love mom and dad? It just says respect them, revere them. They should love their parents. This guy was really upset at the lunches. I understand. <laughs> love everybody else, but not your parents. <laughs> parents gave you a life. Oh, so he says, if you expect anything back like love from your children, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. There's no way. You give a thousandth of percent of yourself, and you, if you're expecting it back, you're not going to get it. If you get one percent, you should be happy. Because you, you brought them into the world. They didn't choose to come into this world. And second, he said, so, so the guy says, well, if that's the case, how, how come, what happens to all that love I give them? He says, you hope they will love their children. What else can you expect? So I think the issue is not that we want to have our kids and you know, and it gridges me too. It gridges me. I'd love them to be exactly like me and do everything I believe, and they should follow every order that I give because I am so experienced and everything else. But I screwed up a lot in my life too. And the only way I've learned to be who I am today is because I've gone through a lot of t- tough times. I don't wish them tough times, but you know what? They're gonna go through tough times. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So with Jewish. No. Nope. In my case, I don't think so at all. I'm just saying that the b- bottom line is, is that, is that there, there is a capacity for human beings to learn, but the learning cannot come from another person's experience. It cannot. I mean, and I wish, I mean, because we're, we're so committed to people being happy all the time. We have to be very careful about that. We overplay happiness. We overplay it as the only, only goal. Uh, and I don't think Jews really, uh, really, I think Jews have to balance that a little bit better. Happy? Okay, it's good to be happy, but there's something beyond being happy. Yes? You and others have taken the Eastern philosophy and right. have various initiatives. What would you like to see in the conservative movement vis a vis our Saturday morning service, our three hour door service, that would incorporate that <laughs> on a weekly basis <laughs> to help affect change in what we do and how we attract? The disaffected well, that's the question. Can you? Can you? Can we ever really work? See, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here because I know it's not to be pessimistic. But I think synagogues have hit the wall. That's what you want. That's why I'm asking. I think they've hit the wall numbers-wise. I think that people who are unaffiliated now want to be unaffiliated, and it's not an act of assimilation anymore. Not even an act of assimilation. They're looking for other ways to be Jewish, that may not be through syn- synagogue. That's a reality. The number of affiliates are growing, the amount of affiliates are growing. And for many reasons, I talked to one, one colleague here. It says it's because there's a consumer mentality now which is different than maybe what I grew up with and you grew up with. You had a community. You had a rabbi. He was your family rabbi. You saw him maybe twice or three times a year, but you knew he would be there for your, God forbid, for a tragedy. And he'd be there for a simcha. And he was your rabbi. you would be proud to say, I belong to a shul. This is my rabbi. Today, you rent a rabbi. So fiscally is a big issue to talk about. Financially, people say, why should I belong to a shul when I need a, a, a bar mitzvah factory? Boston has four bar mitzvah factories. $1,000 down, 1500 to go, that's it. You don't have to be a member of the shul. We'll have the kids bar mitzvah, that's it. Funerals, call a rabbi, ask the funeral home. They'll hire you a rabbi for $375. <laughs> so the idea of affiliating, of being a supporter of Mamisha community, a kehila, is going by the wayside for a lot of people because it's part of the consumer mentality. A la carte, I want an a la carte. I don't want prefix. So do you think that's inexorable? What can we do? Unless we, it's inexorable to a degree that even the kids who are day school kids are, don't, are not joining shuls. They're making their own minyanim. They want places that don't have that institutional veneer. They want to have a more personal, interactive kind of thing. So the question becomes, should their shuls ever be, should we still hope, that, I'm, I'm to say it one way. We should not be, it shouldn't be a problem that we're smaller in our congregations. We should take advantage of the fact that we may have smaller con- congregations by bringing in all this stuff and getting to know each other, becoming a bigger and tighter family. Because ultimately, what will attract people to a shul is not ideology, and not whether the, the chazan a, a, can reach 14 octaves, or that is whether or not they see that these people are really human beings who are there for each other. <coughs> and they'll say, well, if, if I'm looking for community, community, I'm coming." they're not coming for our ideology. Once you got them in the community, ah, then you can work on them. The way we have to work on ourselves. There's no community that can stop working on itself, because you get self-righteous. So you know, you know. So that's what I'm saying. Is that we should get away. Like people ask me, oh, what kind of shul do you have? How big is it? They ask me, how big is it? I say, what even is this? How big is it? It isn't, but big, you know. It's how you use it. But that's the first. But that's the first question people ask. Oh, you have a big shul, as if that's the success is you have five thousand members. That, that you don't know <laughs> right that you don't know who they are but I'd rather have 200 members who know each other who create a real community you know what you'll be surprised how that will grow faster than than, than anything else we have uh, we have the the, the the timekeeper here so uh, you tell me what the story is we have to go up to dinner I think the kids are going crazy up there so I uh, will call this session at end, 6 and <laughs> <laughs> Shabbat shalom everyone